You're listening to the free preview episode of On Belief, a podcast about cults by Karen Geyer. To hear the entire episode, go to patreon.com forward slash Karen Geyer, K-A-R-E-N-G-E-I-E-R, and sign up. It's only $5 for the entire series. If you join our Patreon during the month of October, you could win a prize pack, including a copy of Caitlin Doty's new book, Will My Cat Eat My Eyeballs? For more information on that, go to patreon.com forward slash on grief pod. This is On Grief, a podcast about death. Episode 4, Adam Caton Holland. Honor, integrity, courage under fire. This is all stuff you kids are going to learn today. All right, game on. To teach is to inspire. You're kind of a leader around here. So why don't we try being a leader to our peers, okay? Now I want you to apologize to this nerd. To enlighten. So who wants a virgin, barely alcoholic margarita? Who's in? Everybody? Yes, that's what I'm talking about, guys. We're having fun and we're learning. To challenge. This time's gonna separate the strong from the weak. Introducing those who can. We could all try being a little more mature this year. (laughs) (laughs) A new comedy from True TV. What's the 411 on the turn up for the library, bitch? Sorry, I should not be calling you bitch. If I were to find out that three teachers planted heroin in his locker, I would have to F word them. I guess if somebody's got to go first, I can go. Fire! The word is fire! Those Who Can. New series, Thursday, February 11th. You are one of the most gifted teachers I've ever seen in my entire life. There's no way that's true. When Adam Caton Holland boarded a plane from Montreal back to his hometown of Denver, Colorado, he was riding high. Unfortunately, his life was about to implode. Adam returned home, and shortly after, his sister was dead by suicide. Adam wrote a book about his experiences called Tragedy Plus Time, and he's here today to talk to us about his experience. Welcome, Adam. Adam, in the book, you go into great detail about your family dynamic. Set the stage for our listeners. Tell us about what your family dynamic was like. Yeah, well, we're a very close family. I don't know, sort of a shorthand, I guess, would be Royal Tenenbaum-esque without dysfunction. We're, you know, we just kind of, my mom, my dad is a civil rights attorney. My mom was an investigative journalist and we were very like ambitious, I would say intelligent children. We all had like a dark side and and Lydia and I were very close. Um, We connected with humor. She was four years younger than me. And Anna, our older sister, were all close as well. But Anna was like a really good figure skater. And so she was off a lot of the time. Like she would go to figure skating practice at 5 a.m. every day and then go like after school. So I think Lydia and I kind of wound up spending a little more time together just because the two of us weren't doing that as much. And so we really kind of just developed our weird little senses of humor together over the years. Talk to me about your sister, Lydia. What was she like and what was your relationship like with her? She was very freakishly intelligent 
and with a really dark, dry sense of humor. She was very empathetic and she was very into animals. And so she was always sort of, I mean, she had such a collection of animals over our life. She was always finding some injured animal or like you'd see, I mean, Lydia in a nutshell is like, we'd often be driving somewhere and you'd see a stray dog and like you couldn't even stop the car before Lydia's leapt out of it and going and trying to get its owner and taking it to a vet and seeing if it has a chip in it. And, you know, just like, I can't tell you how many things we were late to because of that. And I, I just feel like that really speaks to who she was. As you grew up together, you noticed that maybe there were some things that led you to believe that not everything was 100% the way it was with her. Can you tell me about that experience? I mean, we all have flirted with depression and we'd all gone to therapy our whole lives, not our whole lives, but you know, when we needed it, it's, we're not a family where like, that's something taboo or like, if anything, it was encouraged and, you know, a family that embraces mental health and all of that. But, uh, at one point Lydia just kind of confessed, it was about two years before she died. She just kind of like confessed to my dad that she, she couldn't sleep and she couldn't read words on a page. She was like, we're all big readers. And like, she would like scan the letters forwards and backwards obsessively. And we, to the point where it'd be an hour would have elapsed and she hadn't read a, a sentence because it was, she couldn't stop from scanning the words. And just, we'd all had these shared OCD ticks, but it became clear that for her, they weren't cute or, or quirky, you know, character features. They were starting to really get a hold of her. And that was when we were like, okay, well, this is concerning. But, you know, we said, we'll get you some help and we'll find some therapists and we'll look into it and we'll, we'll try to figure it all out. And that was kind of the first sign that something was a little amiss. When she was really suffering, did you feel at that point like it may get worse or it may even end in her death? No, I mean, that's the really tough part about it. I mean, there was a, there were like there was an overdose she had, which we thought was accidental. And then she had another one. And then that was when we were like, oh, God, this is bad. And she had to go to the psych ward for a mandatory 72-hour hold. And and that's when you're like, you're having like an exit interview with healthcare professionals. And you're crying with your family for 72 hours. And she was crying. And it was scary. And, you know, it, at that point, we're like, this is, that's when the severity sunk in. But even then, I didn't think she was going to kill herself because we'd ask her point blank, are you going to? And she'd say no. And not in a sort of I'm fooling you, but like a heartfelt way. And, you know, we said, what do you need? What can we do? Can we you need to leave the country? What, you need to just get, leave this all behind? Like, let's do it. We'll buy you a ticket anywhere. It, and it, it's just kind of like the last it all happened so fast that you're just playing catch up. And it's only in hindsight that you can connect the dots and be like, I can logically see how A led to B, led to C, led to D. But in real time, it's so confusing and frustrating and chaotic and not black and white. She'd be totally normal and reasonable and exceptional one day. And then the next day, she'd be a total, total fuck up. And so, you know, I did, I do comedy and she was an integral part of that. She 
she would work the door at my comedy shows that my buddies and I put on and she would run tech and she'd make flyers and she would do, she was huge. So, you know, we're their monthly show. So one month she runs it like a champ. Everything's great. The next month she doesn't show up and there's a line around the block and there's no one there to take their money or we haven't tested the video. And, and because you didn't realize the severity of like what was happening to her, you're just pissed. And you're like, you almost think it's flakiness, you know? Those, those are the things that are really hard to come to terms with after the fact, because you feel so ashamed of, of having anything other than empathy for this person who was suffering. But at the time, you couldn't see it clearly, you know? It's that, that's a really harsh reality that I think a lot of people who've gone through something like this can relate to, because it's impossible to just be this perfect bedside manner when you don't even really understand what's happening. A lot of pop culture depictions of a person who has suicidal ideation are not very accurate. A lot of times what we see on screen is a person who's either inconsolable 24-7 or somebody who is super happy, super motivated because they have a plan. It hardly ever manifests exactly in one of those two ways for most people. So what happened with your sister? It's a, it's a simplistic way to try to look at a human brain. And so to be like, oh, well, you know, on this date is when the switch flipped and then Lydia's brain was, it was like, it's so blurred. And I think the person suffering it doesn't even understand it. And so I think a lot of things are unintentional, perhaps. I don't know. I'm not trying to put anything on her. Certainly there's, you know, deliberate action involved in taking your life. Yeah, I wrote about this and I talk about this, but it's like we're, we're 30 years out from electroshock therapy. Like we don't really understand the brain as well as we think we do. So to sort of sit and be like, this is what she had. This is how it went down to me is like, we don't know. So I use the blanket term mental illness because people are always like, was she bipolar? Was she schizophrenic? Was she manic depressive? Was she, you know, all this? And I was like, I mean, I could tell you 20 things they diagnosed her with. But I for me, I say mental illness took out my little sister. Right. And at the end of the day, your sister is still gone. So it's sort of immaterial. That's how I feel about it. So it's and I do think that it's a human instinct we want to try to pinpoint and solve. But anecdotally, it's like she had cancer. She had mental illness. It just it's what happened. Right. And when somebody dies of cancer, you don't ask for specific details or their medical chart. Right. It's weird. And I think I honestly think it's because we're so afraid of mental illness and it's still so taboo. Like even in in woke ass 2019, people are still like, oh, she killed herself. We like whisper it. And I'm kind of I'm sick of that. So for me, it's just like, you know, it's as, it's mental illness. That's what happened. It sucked. In our society, though, we're sort of obsessed with knowing about other people's mental illnesses, but we're not very supportive of people actually going to therapy and actually seeking treatment. Right, right. I mean, exactly. I, I've said that as well. It's like you work on someone's working on their physical health. You're like, good for you, man. Someone's working on their mental health. We're like, oh, God, what's wrong with them? It's like, no, they're just working on their mental health. It's also, you know, you've probably heard all the platitudes, but, you know, it's it's a spectrum. Nobody's perfectly 
I'm not perfectly mentally healthy. You're not perfectly mentally healthy. Maybe sometimes, but it changes. So if you wrote this into a movie, it would make for a really juicy plot, but your career was really taking off right at the same time when Lydia was having the worst part of her struggles, and then she eventually died. Yeah, no, so I do comedy, and the comedy field a really big sort of feather in the cap is is to be called to be named a new face at the Montreal Just for Laughs competition. As I write in my field, it's like it's like you're drafted into a sports league. It's like, okay, rookie, you're you've arrived. Welcome to the big leagues. And so I, I especially for a comic from Denver, Colorado, which is, you know, not LA or New York or Chicago. It's a harder city to break out of, comedically speaking. And and so I got to be a new face after years of hard work and I went to Montreal and really kicked butt and everybody was, you know, patting me on the back and I got nice press and I got an agent and I got a manager, head swimming stuff. I, and I was texting Lydia the whole time because Lydia was such a big comedy fan and, and such a fan of my comedy because it was very much born out of our shared sense of humor that she was so happy for me. Even two days before she died, she was still like, tell me everything, tell me everything. And she was the one friend who it didn't feel gauche or narcissistic to be like, oh my God, this happened. She was just, I could, I could earnestly geek out with her about career stuff and comedy stuff. And she was just as happy for me. And it didn't, it wasn't braggy or anything. And, and then I came home from Montreal and uh, she was a mess. And then the next day she, she killed herself. And so for me, you know, it's one of those just sad ironies that you think all this is important, your career's going this way, you think your world is all about one thing, and then in an instant, none of that matters, and your entire viewpoint shifts. And it was a real mind fuck for me, and it was hard to to deal with, it was hard for a million reasons, obviously, but it was very hard to pivot back and be like, okay, oh yeah, career. I guess I gotta try to do that. Like, it was one of those just, you know, I didn't give a shit. <laughs> but I also had worked hard enough that I didn't wanna blow these opportunities. So it was this very zombie sleepwalking through a couple of years. And luckily, it kinda worked out for me, but it was definitely a dark, strange time. How did that affect your grief? What was that like for you? I think for about a year, I put up a front. I just thought, and I buried myself in work, because that always works. So I, I think I just thought, channel your grief. Like I, we sold a TV show, we had to make a pilot. I was like, just put everything you got into this, and don't worry, and don't think about anything else. And I also, like Lydia was so happy for me. Like I, wrote, I had a TV show called Those Who Can't. I remember when I wrote, I wrote an earlier version of it years ago. And I was like, when somebody dies, you can't help but like, I go, I comb through all our old emails, all our old texts, all our old Facebook messages. And I found an email where I sent the very first draft of it to Lydia. And I was like, what are your thoughts? You know, I knew that some, some part of me knew like, she's very into this and very proud of you. So do it. But I was also pissed at her. So another voice in my head is like, well, who cares what she thinks? Like, it, you know, it's very complicated. But I think I buried myself in it and fooled myself like I'm good. And then I just kind of, after about a year, I broke down 
and like had to get serious help because I was kidding myself. When people have these kinds of traumatic experiences with sudden death, oftentimes they will report that they have lost blocks of time or they can't remember entire events. Is that what happened to you? Absolutely. And I honestly think, I don't know, if it's a, it, I don't care, it's not a giveaway. I, I found my little sister and that was such a traumatic memory that it really, really fucked me up. And I was basically suffering from PTSD. So I did this therapy called EMDR, which I bet you're familiar with, called eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And it's this very elaborate therapy that involves closing your eyes and going over the memory a bunch and simulating rapid eye movement. Point being, when you have a memory that traumatic, it obliterates every other memory. And so all I had was this like, it's, and it seems so reductive and unfair that I had 28 years with Lydia that I, I loved her as my little sister and best friend and that it all boiled down to this one awful memory. And so EMDR helped me recover a lot of memories, but truthfully, I think my memory is like permanently damaged. Because people used to, I'm a writer, and, and people always used to be like, how do you remember that? Like I'd be the guy that would pull out these details from back in the day, and it was a point of pride, and now that's kind of like gone. And that may coincide with some drug use and drinking, I don't know, but, um, but it's weird. I feel like it really hurt, damaged my memory. So I definitely have periods of time that are lost. And yeah, I couldn't tell you a lot about, I couldn't tell you a lot about the two months after Lydia died. I remember showing up to set to film the pilot. And like, that's about it. I was present at the death of somebody very close to me. And I have what can best be described as Swiss cheese brain surrounding a lot of events during that same time period. Yeah. Well, no, I'm sure that's very heavy. It's serious stuff. And yeah, it's, I think it, I, I mean, I'm sure there's studies about it, but it, it definitely, um, similar Swiss cheese memory is a very good way to put it. Grief is irrational and there's no one way to grieve. And that's something that I think you really explain very well in the book. You describe times after the death where you found yourself driving around some really sketchy parts of town. And walking around some not great parts of LA. Yeah, and getting angry at random times and just having crying jags. Walk me through that experience because a lot of people have a misconception that you're either an angry griever or a sad and depressed griever, or you're a hysterical griever. They don't seem to realize that it changes, you know, minute to minute. And it can be situational. I mean, I only know my experience, but one therapist in the army of therapists hired by my family over the last seven years said to us, said to one of us, we trade therapy tips like like, I don't know, like other people trade exercise techniques. We're like, you try this, you try this, try this. We just try them on. But one therapist said it's important to let every family member grieve however they need to grieve. And that like, there's no right way to grieve. And that seems really helpful, especially for like a family unit or a group of friends all dealing with something. It's like one person might 
have a breakthrough sooner than the other, or one person might, might not want to talk about it in the way that the other person is dying to talk about it. And you really have to respect that and not get frustrated at the other person because then you're going to like lose that person too in another way. Um, and so I think my family has learned to do that through trial and error, but yeah, just personally that I don't, I couldn't tell you what way I grieve. And I've learned that my thinking on death and grief and all of it changes all the time. And I've definitely reached some permanent conclusions, but I know that how I feel now will might not be how I feel in a year. And so I just kind of recognize that. And, and in talking about it, which I've had to do for this book and the one man show and stuff, I've become this reluctant spokesperson for mental illness, I guess. But it's really important to tell people, I think with grief and, and horrific grief and mourning, people think there's going to be this place where you land and you're healed. And I just always tell people, I'm not healed. I'll never be healed. I've certainly got nuanced thinking and I'm not as devastated as I once was. It's easier to put foot in front of the other. But to think that you will reach a point of healing is so naive. And it's, uh, as I say in the show, it's all very Russian. It's like, Oh, so you're, you're just now learning that life is shit. Like, what are you, new? You mentioned before your strong family bonds. And obviously this is an experience that you were all experiencing together. And you were physically together for quite some time after she had died. How has experiencing your family's grief affected your own? Hmm, what a great question. <laughs> I guess just reinforcing what I just said, which is like that, it, that neither one is more correct than the other. Like initially my dad and I, and still to this day, we talk a lot more about it. Um, and we just right out the gates, maybe we're more, I guess we unfortunately learned that my father and I maybe process grief more similarly than other members of our family. Um, but I think my sister and my mom process grief probably more similarly as well, which is a little more private. And, you know, while I've had a hundred conversations with my dad about it, I've probably had, who knows, three or four with my mom, but they've been so profound, you know? So it's kind of like, I think early on I was leading the charge of, of like, I want to talk about this. I want to talk about this. And, you know, I remember my sister Anna being like, I don't. You know, and I was like, not generally, but like right now. And I was like, I got to respect that. So I think it's been a process of learning to not assert my tactics and on other people. Modern depictions of grief are often, you know, somebody is walking around and everything reminds them of the person that they've lost or, you know, they have triggers in their day-to-day -day lives that they just can't get over. But grief actually manifests in a slightly different way for many people. It's often a problem of downtime and gaps and holes in your day and when you have silence and that's when the grief creeps in. You have a lot of downtime when you're a working comic. You're on planes for hours, you're waiting for auditions, you're waiting for meetings, you're in traffic. 
Did you have those moments where maybe you were on a plane and it got to you? Oh, God, yeah, yeah. I mean, planes already make people cry. And yeah, I mean, I I, I'm a, I sobbed on planes. And, and when I started doing comedy again, because I took a while off because I was just like, I can't be funny. Yeah, when I started doing comedy, I mean, that's when I kind of broke down. I, I write about it in the book, but I was on, on the road and I was doing this club and I was just not there and I was bombing and I, it was the, the voices crept in and I totally thought, I, I heard a voice being like, you should kill yourself. You should 100% kill yourself. And I sat there in my hotel room, like entertaining that thought until I realized like, I can't do that because Lydia did that. And I saw what that did to my family. And I don't know if they had bounced back from another one. They hadn't even bounced back at that point. I certainly hadn't. I don't know if that was the alone time or just where I was at, but it was alone in a hotel room. One of the more interesting stories in the book is that you had this one night at a bar with an acquaintance where you just let everything out and you got really deep with them and discussed your loss and they had had a similar loss. And later they tried to contact you on Facebook and friend you and you just couldn't bring yourself to reply. I think it's a perfect illustration of the irrationality of grief and how sometimes you can't get deeper. Denver's kind of, it's getting bigger all the time, but it's still a small city and I'm from here. So I know a lot of people and I was at a bar. and I think the guy, we were like face, mutual Facebook friends. I don't even know, new friends of mine. He somehow knew what happened to my sister and his brother had killed himself years previous. And so he just sidled up to me at the bar. I was alone, drinking, sad. And he just pulled up next to me and we started chatting and it was like the most cathartic thing. And we closed the bar down and then I went home and passed out. And the next morning he had messaged me being like, and he was, it was funny too. He was like, Hey man, good talking. Like we should do it again sometime and, and not be as cliche emo. You know, it's just like, he's a funny guy. And then I, but I just never even responded. It felt like I had had a one night stand and I was ashamed of it. And I think that was how I was feeling about my grief. And about, there's an odd level of protection, which is weird for someone who's written a book and is now doing a one-man show. But I talk about that in the book, in the one-man show, feeling like like in a weird way, this was a something Lydia shared with us and is private and it's intimate. And so to then go out and talk about it, you're like, am I betraying Lydia? Because would, would she be embarrassed about this? You know, so... There is this instinct to hold on to that grief and that shock and trauma. But I also think that's born of a societal stigma of like not talking about it. It's just like we were talking about the cancer thing beforehand. Like, I think if someone who had cancer died, I don't think they'd be like, why are you telling people I had cancer? You know, I feel like it's just sort of something that happened. And obviously, I don't think Lydia wants her whole life story broadcast all over the place. But I try to put it through my lens of like, here's what it was like to be a brother to this person. Have you ever had a moment where you felt like I have to hold on to this grief because it's the only thing that I have left that connects me to this person? Absolutely. And like, I almost remember when I'd feel good, I would feel bad. I'd catch myself being happy. 
and then I and then I would feel like it was a betrayal of Lydia, like like it was somehow incorrect of me to not be devastated for the rest of my life. Like uh, my grief wasn't strong enough if I allowed myself any moments of happiness. It was somehow a betrayal to her. And that's such a poisonous way of thinking. But I remember thinking that for sure. Um, yeah, it's it's hard. Like I remember, uh, it, you know, she's we're seven years out from her death. And it's sometimes it becomes two dimensional. Like you don't remember the experience of her. It's, it's just you almost have this like, like uh, you feel like a politician doing a stump speech. You like you have these like five anecdotes that you share. And that was Lydia. And it feels so boiled down and, you know, concentrated that when you get a memory that comes through, it knocks the wind out of you because you're like, oh, no, there's the three dimensional person. He, he emailed me and he he. Lydia lived in, after college, she lived down in Colorado Springs, which is an hour from here. She went to, and she had a group of like artist friends. They're all musicians. And, and I guess one of her photographer friends did like a photo shoot with her. And I had no idea. I don't know about that. It was just some friend taking pictures of Lydia. And somehow my dad got hold of it and he sent me to it. He sent it to me. And it's like 300 photos of Lydia. And it's so the emotions, you know, it's like th you can see her being self-conscious in the photos and like shy. And it was so visceral, real that I was like, oh, my God, like it just made me sob because I was like, I haven't I forgot it. You forget the feeling of like knowing her. And when that comes back, it's just like a lot. We never teach people what to say in a situation when someone dies, and we especially don't teach anybody what to say in the instance of sudden death or death by suicide. Let's talk about the reactions that people had towards you in the wake of Lydia's passing. <laughs> I mean, everything made me feel uncomfortable. I can't remember specific bad ones, but I remember I appreciated the people that were just forthright about it because it seemed like a lot of people would tiptoe around it. And I just appreciated people that were like, I'm so sorry about your sister. Like that was like, thank you. That's the right way to do it. But I remember people just kind of like tiptoeing around it or, or taking 10 minutes of like warm up banter before they could talk about it. And I was like, I don't need your warm up banter. I live in this place. Um, so yeah, but it's, it's not on them. It's like, it's a hard thing to talk about. In the book, you describe some unusual and creative ways in which Lydia's friends memorialized her. She had a lot of artist friends. Tell me about that. Lydia was so fucking smart and talented, but she lacked confidence to the nth degree. So she was so good. She, played, she was great at drums, great at guitar, great at piano. She was good at a lot of things. And so especially in the later years of her life, like she would just like musicians flocked to her. <laughs> I think like, I think a lot of them found her enigmatic and puzzling. And, you know, like I said, she, she could, she, she broke, broke the heart of many a cliched singer songwriter guy. So I think uh, several people wrote songs about her and this one dude wrote a nice poem about her. And I think she was like a muse for a lot of people there's a perception that grief is sort of a switch where a terrible thing happens 
you switch on and you go into grief mode and then a period of time passes and then you turn the grief switch back off. But the reality for a lot of people is that it is a prolonged curtailment of the ability to experience joy. In the book, you describe it in the way that it's not that you can't appreciate a joke or that you can't have a joyful experience. It's just that there is a limit on how much you can enjoy that experience or how much it actually hits you. Of joy? I mean, yes, it's very real. But truthfully, I've kind of reached a place that I've forced myself to be at. And so, so here's my worldview. Here's my religious view. The time we have on the planet is, is very small. And, I, and I've, I don't know if I've written this or not, but like, especially if you think about it in terms of evolution, like the, what's the world? A couple billion years old? How long has humans been here? Not even a million? So the little amount of time we have had on this planet is nothing on like the grand timeline. And Lydia's life is even smaller. Our lives are almost equally small. So we have such a little blip of time and we don't know why we have it. You can have all sorts of religious beliefs, but we're here and we don't know why. So this could be it, or there could be an afterlife. Either way, I'd say there's an afterlife. I die, I'm united with Lydia. Great. Say there's no afterlife, I die, it's lights out. I'm not aware of not being away, of being away from Lydia. So what's the point of like wasting all this time being sad? And that's a, you have to actively frontal brain think that but I'm trying to be like, I'm, I'm soaking it up. I'm gonna like enjoy life because it's gonna be over so quick. And uh, I feel like that's a really good way to honor the person that's gone. So in answer to your question, I try to get as much joy as I can out of things. And I just, I have a 10 month old baby and that's like the most joyous thing. And that's helped me a lot. So one of the therapies that you tried in your quest to alleviate your grief is a new therapy that a lot of people have been talking about. It's called EMDR. Walk me through what EMDR is and what the benefit is. It's a brand new party drug sweeping the clubs. Basically, the metaphor that my therapist used, because Everyone, therapists love metaphors for the brain. They can't get enough of them. Here's, here's the one mine used. Um, the brain is like a filing cabinet. And the memory of, of finding Lydia had become an errant file. And it was coming up at inappropriate times through nightmares and flashbacks. I couldn't control it. It was controlling me. So the goal of EMDR is to take that memory and file it away in an orderly fashion. So that it's there for you to pull up when you want to pull that file up, but it's not going to just pop up when you don't want it to. And so I think there's various ways of doing it. And I want to assure your listeners, there's various practitioners of it as well. So it's like, I think I got a really good one because I've heard of stories of really bad ones. So essentially what, what I did was I held these electronic pulsers in my hand and they would like tick tock back and forth. So like, so then I'd close my eyes and the therapist would say, all right, let's go through the memory of finding Lydia. And with your eyes closed, 
they instinctually follow that tick-tocking of the pulsars in your hand, simulating uh, REM, rapid eye movement, which is what happens when we sleep. And what I've learned is how we process what we've seen throughout the day and process a lot of things through REM. So basically you're tricking your body into thinking it's asleep and while you're talking about this awful memory. And over a while, like what was crazy is new details of the memory would emerge. Like she'd be like, what were you wearing? What was on Lydia's bedside table? What was the weather like? You know, and like you almost, you flesh this picture out and it's awful and traumatic as it sounds because you're literally reliving the worst thing that ever happened to you over and over and over and over and over again. But after a while, it just, for me, the flashbacks went away, the nightmares went away, and it totally worked. Like I had control over the memory. And at some point, I just sort of told the therapist, I'm done with this. And she's like, then you're done with this. And it's, she's great. I still call her up every couple of months and, and just say, can I come in? And I don't do EMDR, but we just talk. Um, but it was really hugely breakthrough for me and it, and it 100% works. So I'm a big believer in it, but I've now spoken on it some and I've had people tell me that they had terrible experiences with people who weren't great. And now they're just reliving this traumatic memory over and over and over again with someone who's not helping guide them through it. So, you know, buyer beware. Um, but my encouragement to people is if you find someone and you're doing it and it doesn't work, try it again with somebody else. Cause I think I just lucked out and found a really exceptional <laughs> practitioner of this strange therapy. What were the results like for you? Was it cumulative? Did you improve after each session or was it one of these things where you go along and you go along and you go along and then all of a sudden it sort of catches? I, th I think it was cumulative because I remember, I, I really remember the first time, obviously, because it was so bizarre. But I remember after the first time, and the therapist even told me, she's like, You're, you should not drive for like an hour after this because your brain is just that. And it was like somebody stuck a key in the back of my head and opened the door a little bit. And I just, it was like drugs. It was 100% like drugs, shrooms or something. Yeah, it was, it was very much like shrooms, and but not in a fun way, <laughs> like when a bad trip, bad trip, bad trip. But so I remember feeling like a literal mind fuck. And, I, and in the, at the low place that I was at, that felt real good. And I was just like, OK, well, that feels different. I'll take different when you're, you know, lying on the ground with grief, seeing awful visions when you close your eyes any other type of mindset is uh, embraced. There can be a real vicious circle with that because the more you lose sleep, the more your brain has trouble processing things and the more it sort of wigs out. Um, and the more that you have those experiences, the less you can sleep because of the anxiety. I know my dog is sitting right here next to me and like, I felt so bad for her because I'd sleep in till one. There'd be times where you'd like go down and the dog had gone to the bathroom in the house because like I hadn't because I hadn't gotten up and walked her like we did every morning. You know, it was just it was like that level of out of it. Whenever you talk about something that's so personal and in particular when you talk about death and in particular when you talk about sudden death by suicide, 
there is a fear that maybe people won't understand it or that they will react in an unpredictable or a negative way. So what has been the reaction to you discussing this event and doing a book and doing a one-man show? Of me sharing this? I think I have always the harshest to myself. I'm always afraid. In my one-man show, I talk about this a lot of like, of, of exploiting this. Like, I don't want to be seen as, as taking my sister's sad story and being like, I see dollar signs. Like, I, it makes me sick to my stomach. Um, but writing about it, talking about it has been so helpful for me that I just don't even worry about that anymore. Like, it's not an exploitation thing. I'm trying to do it as, as honestly and as respectfully to her as I possibly can. And I know she'd be fine with it. But so, so no one's given me that. I think that is what I was afraid people would say, like, you're exploiting your sister's death to like, write a book. And I'm like, No, I'm just writing a book about what I went through. So no one's given me any shitty reactions. Like the reaction has been overwhelmingly supportive. And um, honestly, grateful, I, I feel like a lot of people can relate to this, like way more than you think. Um, you know, it's not six degrees of separation. It's one. We all know somebody suffering from mental illness. So I feel so I think the reaction has been just like, I mean, after shows, people come up and and just mob me and tell me like the saddest stories. And and I have to like protect myself a little bit and be like, I can't go there with you, but I'm so sorry. Like, but I, I think a lot of people bring through something like this people respond to honest stories in any medium. And so I think there's just a little bit of like normalization through me doing it. And that, that's been the response. Sometimes when people confront you with very personal information like that, you have to worry how close to the surface these experiences are that they're telling you about. Are you perhaps triggering something? Are you perhaps exacerbating something? Is there something that they're going to come out of this situation a little bit worse for. So do people ask you for advice? A lot of people reach out to me and ask about EMDR. And so I always send them to a database, which is like, here's how you can find a certified person in your area. It's not for everybody. So if it doesn't work for you, don't worry about it. Like I always, and then I just sort of move on. Tell me about the positive stuff that's happened to you in the intervening time. So you got married and you had a baby. I don't know. I got married, uh, wow, almost three years ago, our anniversary soon. And then my son is uh, almost a year. How has having a son reframed this experience for you? And what will you do differently with your son than maybe what you were raised to believe about grief? Well, it's reframed it and then like, in the way that anybody who's lost somebody can relate that like big life events make you really sad because she's not there. So she wasn't there for my wedding. She doesn't get to meet this little dude who she would love so much. And that like really makes me sad. I, I called Lydia Lee was her nickname. And then my son's middle name is Lee. And you know, someday I'll have to explain that to him. And that's hard. Um, but I think it's just, it's taken me a while to rediscover joy. And my wife has been really patient and good about that and helped me rediscover it. But this kid is just like undeniable. It's, I'm such a cheesy first time parent, but it's like, 
you know, it's just you you put him to bed and you're like, oh, man, I can't wait till morning because I miss him. Like, it's just you're excited to see the little guy and watching a child rediscover everything. It's nice to see that child like in a sense and be like, oh, here's a blade of grass or like the wind will blow and blow the leaves. And he just stares at the leaves and you're like, man, this is a good, simple, nice place to be. So it's been really nice to have that. It definitely makes me miss her all the time. What's the most important thing that you want people to know about grief and grieving from your own experience? I think it's that it's okay to not be healed and that you shouldn't expect that. You've been wounded in a way that will never heal. You've lost a limb and you're going to limp. So as soon as you, the sooner you're like, realize that that is the end place with grief, the sooner you can sort of like caustically proceed. I was, I was a smart ass, cynical, depressed person before this. And if anything, this just like reaffirms like, yep, this is the world. <laughs> so I, I at least had been training for this, but I think a lot of cynical comedy fans can are, feel the same way. So I, to just, to just expect to allow yourself to know that it's not your fault for not being healed. It's nothing you're doing wrong. It's just how it is for you now. And to recognize that there's still a lot of joy to be had, even though you're wounded and fucked up permanently. I want to thank you for being here with us today. If you want to follow Adam Caton Holland, he is at C-A-Y-T-O-N-H-O-L-L-A-N-D on Twitter. And you can find the book Tragedy Plus Time, a tragicomic memoir, available wherever you find books. Thank you for listening to On Grief, a podcast about death. If you'd like to contribute to our Patreon, it's patreon.com forward slash ongriefpod. You can find us on the web at ongrief.fireside.fm. You can find us on social media at, at ongriefpod on Instagram or on Facebook and on Grief Podcast on Twitter. Next week. There's one that's my favorite that you put a certain type of material that reacts with breath, something in your breath, and you write something like, I'm really alive, and put the piece of paper over the person's face. And I, if they're really, really alive, it will appear, like the words will appear, which is some sort of like, sounds like a Tales from the Crypt thing, like uh, sort of archaic, like invisible ink, Carmen Sandiego, child's fantasy, death is like. Um, but yeah, that's, that's what they, they used to do. And, and, you know, you sort of understand it because this is a time where you didn't, you knew that people disappeared, you knew that they died, but where do they go? What right. does death really mean? What does that look like? I mean, it's really only in the 20th century that we've had this highly medicalized and scientific view of death. Caitlin Doty.